Hey guys and girls, welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Brazil, your host, where I get to interview Olympic athletes and hopefuls on their story and path to the games. And today, we actually have a very interesting interview. We don't have an athlete today. Today, we have Jerry Solomon. He is actually an agent, a super agent, let's call him, to many Olympic athletes, former and current. He's actually married to Nancy Kerrigan, and surprise, surprise, is also her agent. Um, but Jerry gets into some of the things, how the sports marketing world's changed a little bit, obviously about himself, um, ways that we could potentially start to utilize some of these Olympic athletes a little bit more. And him and I have a nice conversation about the sponsorship side. And I guess the comparisons of Olympic athletes versus quote unquote normal athletes. So hope you guys enjoy the interview. It was a lot of fun. Jerry's an amazing guy with a lot of information. Check it out. He has a book. I'll have it in the show notes. Um, I'll have his uh, website in there as well, so you can check out some of the other athletes and some of the things that they're doing over there. So without further ado, hope you guys really enjoy this interview with Jerry Solomon. All right, today, very special guest, Jerry Solomon. Jerry is a sports agent with Star Games. He has been a at the top of the sports marketing um, world. He has been an executive for the last 20 years, give or take, maybe a little longer than that. He graduated from Columbia University with a master's degree in international business. In 1980, Jerry joined ProServe, at the time the second largest sports marketing and management company. He eventually made it to COO and then eventually president of the company. He then in 1994 moved over to Boston to and created Star Games, a sports and entertainment marketing management and production agency. He is responsible for helping found Oh man, I'm gonna say the last name wrong again. Found the Karch. <laughs> say it for me, Jerry. Karai. 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 I put it down, and I phonetically I can't even read it. Look at that. The Karch Karai Scholarship Fund, the Kids Sports Foundation, and the Nancy Kerrigan Fund. He is a professor of sports marketing at the University of New Hampshire, and wrote an insider's guide to managing special sports events. Jerry, thanks for hanging out with me today. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Love it, love it, love it. Awesome. So uh, I guess we'll start at the beginning. How did you, what, what about sports management and sports marketing really drew you to the industry to kind of make it your life's work over the last, uh, let's call it three decades? So first of all, when I first got into it, I don't even think it was called sports marketing. Um, it was just called marketing. Hmm. And um, when, uh, when I was a kid, sports was very important in my life. I played sports. I was you know, throughout the time that I was growing up. And uh, I, I graduated, actually, my undergraduate was from UCLA. And then when I moved to uh, New York to go to Columbia, I was really looking for a way to get credits for classes, frankly, without having to go to class. And so um, they had an internship program at Columbia, which I could be part of. And when I, and when I saw that I could do that, I decided that I wanted to uh, see if I could work in the sports business. I really never had any uh, exact vision of being an agent or, or anything in particular. Um, but in uh, looking around, in, you know, I was living in New York City, going to Columbia, which, you know, so virtually every sports organization of any note was uh, represented in New York. So I sent out letters to all of them and um, ended up, going into the Colgate Palmolive Company, which uh, was at the time the major sponsor of men's and women's tennis around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to uh, convince them that they really needed me to be an intern in their sports and recreation department, if you can believe they actually had mm -hmm. one. And um, that's how it all got started. 
That is incredible. And just to let you know, um, going to getting credits without going to class is still very much uh, in vogue for college students. So you, uh, you, uh, you're, you're, the trend is still there. Maybe you said it. I'm not totally sure, but believe me, the trend is still there. So I just think it's funny that it wasn't even, it was just considered normal marketing. And now I mean, sports marketing is a however many billion dollar business at this point with a very specific, um, a way about it. So I think that that's very interesting. And, and I mean, congratulations on, uh, convincing Palm Olive that they needed you as an intern. That's, I was probably, uh, probably one of your easier sells, I'm assuming. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. The back in those days, um, most of the decisions to become a sponsor of a sports event were actually made by, you know, the most senior executives at companies. And and Colgate Palmolive was really no different. Um, the uh, the chairman of the board was a guy named David Foster. And he was a very forward-thinking guy, and he got them into sports because his core audience was women, and he was looking for ways to reach women. And so he started with the company getting involved in golf primarily first uh, through the Colgate Dinosaur Women's Classic, which was at the time the biggest, I think, the biggest event in women's golf, and then that led into tennis. So. It, and that's how the decisions were made. They were made at the very, very top echelons of companies. You didn't have agencies and number crunchers and all the different things that we see today that are in the marketplace. Those things really did not exist back then. There's a lot of gut instinct marketing by people who just had a sense that um, if they got involved in sports, it might be helpful to their overall product marketing. That's very interesting. I would have never uh, guessed that it would have went that high, but I guess it, it does make sense. Again, thinking back to the '80s, um, you know, before that, even that that uh, it was really a top-down kind of corporation. Most corporations really were top-down. They didn't really have too much bottom-up. So that is that is very interesting. So um, obviously, again, you being one of the most notable sports marketing executives, as I said, for over the last 20 years now, um, representing multiple Olympic athletes. I know that they are within your roster and that is something that you do. Um, Nancy Kerrigan being one of them. Um, what is it like representing an Olympic athlete maybe compared to other, maybe not more notable or known, but more, um, frequented, more accessible athletes? Yeah, so I, I've been, look, I've been very fortunate. Um, I, I, on the one hand, I've sort of had a more eclectic group of clients. Most people in our business tend to be specialists in a particular sport. Um, <clears throat> I've never really felt that that was necessary. I, I, I looked to represent the athletes that I found most intriguing. Uh, and that's really sort of how I got into representing a variety of these people. Mm -hmm. Some were by referral. Um, but, you know, among them are really some of the greatest athletes of all time, even including all the ones that are household names. And, and that's one of the, uh, one of the real issues that we face in representing Olympic athletes who are not in sort of the major sports. So case in point, perfect case in point, is your inability to pronounce Karch Karai's name. Mm -hmm. Karch Karai is, in my, in my opinion, 
the greatest athlete of all time in his sport or in any person's particular sport. So if you, if you say that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, Karch Karai is the greatest volleyball player of all time, but his record by comparison to Michael Jordan's record dwarfs Michael Jordan's record. Karch was undefeated in high school, undefeated in college, won indoor gold medals at the Olympics for indoor volleyball, gold medals for beach volleyball. He's the winningest beach volleyball player ever. And I think he had won something like 160 beach volleyball events. So here's a guy who I would put up pound for pound, inch for inch against anybody in the history of sports, man, woman, I don't care what sport. And, you know, his name is not that well known to the point where, you know, you weren't sure how how to pronounce it. So Mm -hmm. that, that really is a, is a great case study of what the athletes are up against who are in the non-marquee sports. When we were talking before, you you talked about um, I forget how you phrased it, but you, something about you know the the higher level Olympic athletes versus the lower level mm-hmm. Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. and and that to me is really a, a serious misnomer because these are all fantastic athletes. These oh, are absolutely. all people who do who do things that you know, the mere mortals don't, they just don't do, mm-hmm. um, you know, t- let's take Janet Evans, who is in a lot of ways, my favorite client of all time, because she was the hardest working athlete I've ever seen. And I- I've represented Yvonne Lendl in tennis for his virtually his entire career. And he is well known as being the hardest working athlete in the history of tennis. And Janet Evans, who's like five foot four and weighs maybe, you know, 110 pounds, maybe soaking wet. Um, you know, she puts all of these people to shame back when she was in in her in her prime uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. So these people are amazing achievers. Um, they don't get the recognition oftentimes that they deserve, not because of their performance, but because their sports are not viewed by a lot of people. And mm-hmm. so, um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating side of it. I mean, you know, you compare the representation of someone like Yvonne or the representation of Nancy, again, figure skating being a very, very high visibility sport, particularly when she was skating. And you compare that to beach volleyball or swimming or, you know, some of the other sports that don't get that kind of visibility those people really do the people who are in those sports and who are excelling in those sports still have a very tough time with on the financial end because there's just not that much money in it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very disappointing. And and the way I did word it, um, second and third tier athletes, you know, I, I, I don't think that they, by their way of work or, or what they do, it makes it second and third tier. It's, it's just the, the, um, the nature of the sports they are in, um, which makes them more on the second and third tier side. I think if anyone is on Team USA or, or, or really, as you said, mere mortals, we can't do anything like that. You know, they'll put in more work by the time they're 18 than I will in my entire life. Um, and I like to think of myself as a relatively hard worker. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate 
way of looking at it. But at the same time, you know, that's, that's why I want to help them um, because I do believe that there is a space for them and that there is a place um, to help them and get them in front of more people and, and hopefully increase their value um, and increase the dollars coming into their pocket. Because I spoke with a woman earlier today on the bobsled team. She makes $700 a month. Um, yeah, she does get room and board and, and, and some food paid for, but at the same time, you can't really live on $700 a month and you can't really save up making $700 a month. So it is, it is very disappointing, but each of these athletes has a story. Each of these athletes is an amazing person, um, an amazing athlete, obviously at the elite level. Um, so I do think that there is a place for it and, uh, you know, hopefully no offense was taken, uh, by the way, I did word that. And I definitely wanted to make sure that that was, that was clear, um, on that side. So what, what is something Jerry? that you think that could be done better either from, from the brand's perspective, from the athlete's perspective, just to give them again, these athletes in, in lesser known sports or less, lesser viewed or visible sports to give them uh, maybe a leg up on the rest of their competition or, or even compare them closer to athletes of more visible sports. So I think the good news is that the world is changing uh, from a technology standpoint. So there are so many more outlets for, um, getting video recognition of these various sports. I mean, let's take, for example, <clears throat> the Olympic channel, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I don't know, maybe two years old, so, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a great development for all of these second and third level sports, not the athletes, but second mm -hmm. and third level sports. So it's giving them much more visibility, which <clears throat> should translate to help the athletes in some way, shape, or form, whether that's through bigger events that therefore attract more sponsorship and therefore can have more prize money or more appearance fees or things of that nature. But it should all filter down um, to the athletes. And I think that if you look at sort of where we are today and where we will be 10 years from now, you know, the number of, the number of delivery platforms just keeps growing and I suspect that that will continue to be the case and as a result if you're a if you're a uh, bobsledder you know you're gonna have a much better chance of getting your your competition seen today than you could five years ago and five years from now I'm thinking it's going to be that much easier than it is now absolutely all of that will all all of that will bode well for the athletes a hundred percent. Yeah. I've been, I've been speaking with some people, um, with, um, you know, just, uh, I think it, as of recording, I think it's this week coming up is uh, curling night in America, if I'm not mistaken. So NBC sports is going to have, um, you know, a whole thing on like for two hours or three hours of just curling, uh, because every, yeah. every time curling is on for whatever reason, America absolutely loves it. And then we forget about it once it's finished. And it's always, um, it's always interesting talking to curlers and just hearing them you know, speak about how after the Olympics, there's this huge surge in, in money into the sport and people into the sport. And then after a little while, it kind of comes down. And then again, when the Olympics come around, it, it keeps coming up. So hopefully if they can keep some of those people around, and I think what NBC is doing, NBC, maybe it's the Olympic channel. I can't remember exactly where it's being aired, um, but it's, it's a pretty cool idea. And hopefully that will be able to help. Um, so you've already alluded to a couple of the things. What are some other ways that the industry has been evolving um, for the good? Obviously, we have social media, technology, all these things. What else has been there that you've seen over the 30 years, um, 40 years, however long it's been you've been in, you know, in this? Um, have you seen like the Olymp uh, the uh, you want me to say 60 years? That's fine, too. Whatever it's been. Uh, no, no, I won't give you that many years. 
it hasn't been that long. Not yet. Well, but I'm look, sure, I, th- I'm sure. I, I, I think that the, um, I think the greatest change that I've seen, certainly in the Olympic side, but even in the professional side, is the professionalization of the sports themselves and the ability for the athletes to generate income from participation. So if you go back to when I first started working with Karch, as an example, he had to he was, an, he was an amateur athlete as, as defined by the International Olympic Committee. So therefore, if he wanted to play in the Olympics, he was not allowed to take money. Now, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, mm-hmm. that was, you know, 30 years ago. And so any money that he earned had to go into a trust fund. And then that trust, he could access money from that trust fund only for expenses and approved items by his federation. So that was an enormously uh, impactful scenario for athletes that were trying to train for the Olympics, which was really their only place that they could participate at that level. You didn't have world-class beach volleyball tours. You didn't have professional swimming events. You didn't have curling. You didn't have all these things that we have today. And so if you wanted to be an Olympic, if you wanted to be a great athlete in a sport that was not the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, you had to be, you were in the Olympic world. And as part of the Olympic world, you were not allowed to take money. So that was a big thing that I fought for a lot of athletes early on in those days. And the same thing is true on the pro level. I mean, I know that we we don't think back to very often to the fact that Major League Baseball players, there was a time when Major League Baseball players couldn't determine where they played because of the, the system that was in place. They got paid very little money and they had no recourse. So they had to have off-season jobs selling insurance or whatever they did. And that the same was true with the other professional sports. Now today we sort of take for granted that, you know, a, a, a second string second baseman in major league baseball makes, you know, a half a million dollars. And the guy who sits on the end of the bench for, you know, the Boston Celtics may be making $2 million and, and hardly ever play. And, and everybody sort of marvels at that, but it was not that long ago that it was completely the opposite. And so I would say the biggest change that we've seen in sports is the opening up of the financial, the the flow of dollars that come into the sports going to the athletes. You know, we don't think twice about, I was reading today, um, I forget her name, but an actress who just signed to do a movie for $15 million. We don't really think twice about that. Mm -hmm. But, But there's still sort of a, a recoiling when you hear that, um, you know, a, a, an athlete is signed for, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But if you think about it, a, a movie, a movie star might do, maybe they only do one or two movies a year, but they could certainly do more if they wanted. And a baseball player is playing 160 games. Mm-hmm. A basketball players playing 80 plus the preseason plus the, the playoffs. I mean, 
So they're working very, very hard. They're getting paid now, finally, commensurate with what they're doing and not across the board. I mean, as we were talking about before, there's still a lot of athletes who are not, not able to make ends meet. And so, but, but if you roll the clock back 25, 30, 35 years, you would be, you know, even shocked that, um, you know, they were making, you know, a pittance. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest, positive movement in sports for the athletes is that they now really have a, a, a pathway to uh, earn some, some substantial money. Yeah. And uh, I, I do love your point that yes, Scarlett Johansson signed, uh, you know, a contract to, to make a couple movies for 15 million. I love her. I think she's a great actress and, and, you know, Hey, if she's worth it, she's worth it. It's, you know, the free market. But um, why, just out of curiosity, you, you've obviously been in this a little longer than I have. Why do fans always get angry at athletes when they either sign what the fan thinks is too big of a contract or, um, when, when they're hurt or, or, you know, in the case of certain football players where they're deciding to sit out for a new contract, why do the fans always side with the billion dollar owners and maybe not the athlete that is putting in the work that is doing everything um, to be on the field? I'm, I'm always curious about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the fans always side with the owners. Maybe not I think always, there's a lot of cases. I think there's a lot of cases where the owners threatened to leave town if they don't build them new stadiums and, mm-hmm things of that nature where I think the fans, I think the fans uh, take issue with the owners, but I, I, and I don't think it's really a matter of even in the athlete case, I don't think it's a matter of them siding with the owners. I think it's just that they, there's a, a, a negative reaction to hearing that someone who's playing a game is making that kind of money. They don't have the same reaction to a movie star because most people never envisioned themselves as being a movie star, but many, many people, boys, girls, men, women, doesn't matter. Americans, non-Americans, they, uh, they played sports growing up. And at some point in their head, they, uh, not in every case, but in many, many cases, at some point in their head, they said, wow, maybe I can play in the NBA or major league baseball or the NFL or whatever. And, you know, at some point they realized they couldn't, but they still, they relate to the athlete in a way that they can't relate to the, to the person who's making movies. And so therefore they're thinking, oh my God, this, that guy's making uh, $3 million and he doesn't even really play. I mean, I was pretty good. I should have kept it up. I could be making that much money. And that, you know, that really offends me that, a guy who's playing baseball is making $3 million or $30 million. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think it's, I think it's more of because of familiarity. You don't have a lot of people sitting around thinking, Oh, I could have been Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. That's actually, I've never heard it put like that. And that is such a great point. Everybody, as you said, boy, girl, American, non-American, they all grow up. If you've been playing a sport at some point, you probably, you know, I remember when I was six years old and the bases were always loaded and it was the top of the ninth inning and I had the opportunity to hit a home run. Um, That was just me playing in the backyard. So I always thought about that. Um, So that's a really, really great point, Jerry. I love that. Um, So uh, just to wrap it up a little bit, one thing that I do have to bring up, um, not only are you an agent to some of these amazing athletes, but you might also be married to one. I think that that's kind of cool. Uh, one of the most um, recognized Olympic athletes of all time, Nancy Kerrigan. What is that like? Um, not the not the marriage and um, 
the the agent side of it but but what is it like just kind of always being with with all these athletes all these amazing people and really being able to see as you were saying you know some of them the hardest workers what does that do for you in understanding like i how how hard you want to then work for them and get them the best possible deals well it's it's interesting in a lot of ways i mean first of all being married to nancy has its own set of things that come with it because as you had mentioned before you know she's highly recognized uh you know when we go out there's people who will stop us and want to take pictures and autographs and things like that which is something that you get used to over time and 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 it's look it's nice to see actually that after all these years she's still recognized and 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 there's she's got a ton of fans out there and people still want to talk to her about what happened at the olympics and that they're big fans and all that. So, so it, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good that comes with that for sure. Um, I think that being around her as well as being around all these other people that I've had the opportunity to be around for, for, you know, such a long time is that you really, you really get a sense of their mentality of how to achieve and what excellence really is. And it puts it in, in great perspective for you because they have, they have such high expectations and they don't like to lose or they love to win. And there is a difference from their, from what motivates them. Um, And their threshold for hard work is just at a level that you know, most of the population uh, just can't can't reach. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't doctors and lawyers and you know business people and whatever that are that work at that same level. Um, there are there are obviously. I mean, in order to excel, I believe, and what I've seen from them is that in order to excel, I don't care what it is, you have to put in hours and hours and hours of very very hard and disciplined work. But that's a hard thing to do, and they are, generally speaking, across the board, um, they are among the most disciplined, focused people that you will ever want to meet. Now, there are the occasional people who are just so gifted that you know it comes very easy and natural to them, but those are really few and far between. Most of these people, no matter how great they are athletically, it it just does not come easy that to to be at the very very top of your sport um, is just really really difficult and so uh, that's sort of what you learn and comes with the territory and it look it it rubs off on you or else you don't or you don't you're not able to keep up with them and um, that's that's been an important lesson right from day one. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. Um, just, just as I was saying before, that the work that they're putting in um, to do their sports, the mental, men, mental, the mental and the physical side of it. Not only, I mean, being able to do both of those, I think, is what makes it just. It just takes it to an absolute another level of impressiveness. Um, and uh, uh, really love that you said it, it rubs off on you, or you're you're not going to be there for a while. So I think that that's a really great point too. So Jerry, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your time today. One more time, Jerry Solomon, um, sports agent at Star Games up in Boston. Um, it represents some of the most amazing people on planet Earth, uh, and he's gonna and he's gonna keep doing it. I'd, what did we say? Another twenty years, maybe thirty years. We'll see how it goes. Um, but Jerry, I, <laughs> I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this interview with Jerry Solomon again um, on Our Athletes. Jerry was an awesome guy. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I got a lot of information from it. I hope you guys did as well. He's a super, super cool dude. Um, if you guys don't mind sharing this with anyone that you think um, really might enjoy Jerry's story and what he's doing with some of his athletes, but also just you know, sharing this with anyone you think would really enjoy the, the, the podcast as a whole, because the more people we can get this in front of, the more athletes um, can get their stories heard and really get out there and get a little more recognition, which I truly believe that they deserve. Uh, sharing, obviously, rating, subscribing is helpful, commenting, letting us know anything we can do better. Reach out to me, michael at ourathletes.us or on Instagram at ourathletes.us. But other than that, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully you'll find a couple others to listen to, and I hope you have a wonderful day.